Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 65 Aberrant, Basic Role Playing, and Chivalry and Sorcery. Okay, so before we get into this week's show, I have to offer an apology for last week's show. Bad GM Productions technical guru noted that the audio quality of the show wasn't up to par, and we don't like it when the quality of our shows aren't up to par. The reason why last week's show sounded different is because I was, again, testing a new microphone, because I have never really been happy with any of the mics I've used for these shows. However, after listening to about five minutes of each of our shows last week, I am in complete agreement with those who thought the audio quality sucked. So I went back to one of the older mics for this week's show, and I'm just figuring out how to make it work until I get things the way I absolutely like them. So long story short, I hope our audio quality is back up to our usual standards this week, and I intend to do my best to keep them that way. So a big thank you to those who reached out to let me know, and of course to our resident tech guru and Bad GM Productions co-owner Gabe Gentleman. I got everybody's message very loud and very clear. Okay, so let's get into why we are all here this week. I've wanted to cover the three games we're touring this week for quite some time, but in doing research on each of them independently, I've found I could find a lot of sites that discuss the games, but I can't find a lot of actual usable information on those sites. So, rather than try to do a single show on a single topic and having it be like 11 minutes, I decided to take what I could find that I would find acceptable for this show and just squeeze it all together. We do three games on one show, which sounds like we're going to need all the time we can get this week, so why don't I just stop explaining crap and let's get on with it, right? (laughs) All right, let's crank up the tour bus and get to our first subject this week, which is... Aberrant. Aberrant was designed by a team of designers, many of whom we've mentioned before on this show. It's a long list, but I'm going to break from my usual tradition and name them all, mostly because I've gotten some emails about not having done that in the past. The design team is Robert Hatch, Craig Blackwelder, Andrew Bates, Ken Cliffy, Greg Fountain, Sherry M. Johnson, Chris McDonough, Ethan Skemp, Mike Tenay, Richard Thomas, Stephen Week, Fred Yelk, and Ian Watson. And if I mispronounced any names, I apologize profusely. Now, this group had actually created a trio of games known as the Trinity Universe, and Aberrant was the middle game of the trilogy, with Adventure and Trinity being the other two. For those of you who are Trinity Universe fans, you already know this, but for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, and if I'm being honest, <laughs> about five days ago that was me, Aberrant takes place about 90 years after Adventure and about 60 years before Trinity. The overall arc of the trilogy is the history of those superpowered superhero types which are known in the trilogy as Novas, and Adventure covers the beginnings of Novas in the 1920s through about 2008, and Trinity picks up about 2068 and covers the future of Novas. But we're here to discuss the present-day Novas, and that's the setting for Aberrant. The overall concept of the game is that Novas have to exist in a mundane world with regular non-powered humans. It also addresses how those humans react to these Novas when they pop up, since somebody able to lift a tanker truck like it's a milk crate, that kind of person doesn't appear every day. Aberrant was originally released in 1999, and it picks up the overall story in 2008. By that point, Novas had been back since about 1998 when they began to reemerge into society. Now, if I'm honest, I don't know what caused them to not have been out before this, but we'll just assume that the adventure book in this series covers that. But that's another show. 
I know I'm kind of jumping around here, but your patience will be rewarded in the end, I promise. White Wolf Publishing was responsible for the entire Trinity Universe line, and they handled the publishing through 2002 when they discontinued the entire line. A D20 version of the line was released in 2004, but it was also allowed to slowly peter out. However, Onyx Path Publishing acquired the rights to the entire line and released a new version of the series in 2021. The Aberrant book is titled Trinity Continuum Aberrant, and it should be available at your friendly local neighborhood game shop. If it isn't, hey, ask them to order it for you. Okay, so with the history out of the way, let's pop the hood on Aberrant and see what makes it tick. Other than the D20 version, which if you've played pretty much any game that uses the D20 system, you understand the basics of how that works, Aberrant has used two systems over its history, the Storyteller system and the Story Path system. Now, we've discussed the Storyteller system multiple times over the history of this show. I mean, White Wolf basically invented the system, so it's been the core of pretty much every game they've published. Trust me, those of you who've played in the World of Darkness know what I'm talking about here. And yes, at some point, we will cover the Storyteller system in its entirety, but today's not that day. The Story Path system, which is the core of the Onyx Path release, is a modified version of the Storyteller teller system. The main difference is this. While the storyteller system is built on tangible abilities like dexterity and strength, the story path system relies on abilities that don't have a tangible value you can use, like momentum. I mean, you can see strength and dexterity in a person, but how do you see and determine what momentum is? Well, in the story path system, they figured out a way to do it. There are a few more differences between the systems, but again, we will cover those when we deep dive the storyteller system a little farther down the line. For our purposes today, we're just going to agree that there's a bit of a difference between the two. Aberrant is rather unique in the White Wolf line for not really having the cast system or some sort of character class to it. However, it does stick to White Wolf's MO of playing with morality, especially in its willingness to not see things in black or white, but in a lot of shades of gray. I don't know if there's 50 there or not, but there are certainly a lot. Aberrant also blurs the lines between heroes and villains that you would normally see in a superhero game. Again, that's one of White Wolf's influences on the game, as the World of Darkness games tend to embrace that blurring of the lines. From personal experience, I can tell you that the freedom of those blurred lines makes for an interesting game experience, but it also forces players to occasionally make some hard decisions, especially if you're playing a character that's based a lot on yourself, just powered up. So since I mentioned powers, let's talk about them. The superpowers in Aberrant come from the character's ability to literally manipulate energy at the quantum subatomic level. Now, I don't have any idea what that means. I have no idea what quantum mechanics are. And I'm going to lay even money most of you don't either. And that actually is the point of Aberrant. Since most people wouldn't understand the theories behind quantum mechanics, a character's power is limited by their subconscious. Since that's what's going to be, in theory, what's going to kick in to protect you. Most powers tend to be on a single path or, or linked to a specific focus. Some Novas use nature as their focus, others use fire, water, shape changing, or any number of other foci that you can think of. Think about what I just mentioned like this. If water is your focus, your powers will all have some sort of water component. Maybe you can survive indefinitely underwater. Maybe you can make it rain with a thought, or, or maybe you can bring water forth from your hands possibilities are limitless. Now, the rules do get deeper into that, but I wanted to give you like a quasi-example of what I meant by a focus. 
Now, of course, as all superhero fans know, with great power comes great responsibility, or, or at least some great downsides. And by great, I don't mean happy fun time downsides. No, no, it is bad. Taint is another component of aberrant, and it exists because Nova's tapping into the quantum fabric of the world without fully understanding it comes with a price. Taint, simply put, is the non-human side of quantum manipulation. In other words, the more you tap the quantum fabric, the stronger you get. The stronger you get, the more taint you acquire. The more taint you acquire, the less human-like you become. In game mechanics, higher levels of taint come in the form of either physical or mental defects, or both if you're just that powerful. A few examples of defects can be sociopathic disorders, one of your powers always being on, a continuous radiation coming forth from you. Those are just three of the possibilities. In all honesty, the possibilities with taint are limitless. And as you would expect, these outward expressions of taint make it more and more difficult for a Nova to blend into society. Now, what would a superhero type game be without some factions? And as I name these, you might just see some connections to some of your favorites from comic book lore. First up, we've got Project Utopia. These folks seem to be the altruistic group. They promote cooperation and unity between novas and humans, with the idea being to build a more perfect world. For the record, Project Utopia also has a UN sanction to deal with novas, so there's always that hanging over a nova's head. Next up, there's Project Proteus. These are the guys who do the wet work to keep novas in line. I mean, I call it wet work, but it's really up to the storyteller to decide how far these guys will go. Maybe they don't actually kill Novas. Maybe they just conspire with others to mess up their cover. Or maybe they take it to an extreme and they try to find ways to sterilize Novas so they can't exist anymore, eventually. Needless to say, Project Proteus is not going to give your group the warm fuzzies when they butt heads, as it were. We've also got the Terrigen as a faction. These guys have decided that embracing who they are is a good thing, and that philosophy has led them to decide they are superior to humans. Yeah, these guys are going to make your game a whole lot of fun. The Terrigen, by the way, are not a single group. It's actually a coalition of multiple smaller groups that are united in vision and purpose. Which also means that if your Novas happen to be going after them, it's going to be a lot like fighting a Hydra. Cut off one head and you're going to probably find two more growing in its place. Another faction in the game are the Aberrants. This is, when compared to the other factions, pretty small. They believe, quite seriously, that there is some sort of corruption within Project Utopia, and they've managed to get the attention of Project Utopia, which is going to obviously lead to some conflict along the way. And if we're being honest, probably some coordination with Project Proteus to uh, deal with the Aberrants. But that might just be the way I'd run it. Your personal experiences may differ. Last on our list of the major factions are the Directive. Yes, that sounds ominous, and it might be, depending on how you run your game. This is an intelligence gathering agency controlled by Russia, the United Kingdom, Germany, Japan, and the United States. <laughs> like I said, this could be ominous, depending on how you run it. Now, with all of that, I need to note that there are a variety of other factions inside this game, and your Novas will probably belong to one of them, or at the very least, contract with them to do jobs. Of course, your storyteller might decide that you and your fellow players are playing characters in their own faction. But again, this is all up to your storyteller. So we've looked at powers, taint, and factions in the game. How about we look at how we get ourselves to that point? Check out a few details on building a character. First up are the basics. In gameplay, the player uses a 10-sided die, as is standard with the storyteller system. When a roll needs to be made, the player adds their character's attribute to the skill or power being used and rolls that number of d10s. Anything 7 or higher is considered a success roll, and the storyteller will determine how many successes are needed to succeed at the task at hand. 
I mean, after all, if you're driving an armored car, that might require one or two successes. But driving an armored car while, say, a teammate is fighting someone off in the back, and while a fighter jet is trying to drop bombs on you, that might require seven or eight successes. Yeah, okay, it's a little bit extreme, but I think the example makes the point. So, building a character in Aberrant is pretty much the same as building one in any other White Wolf game. You've got your normal attributes and skills, and they're purchased in the normal way. What makes Aberrant different is that there are also mega attributes that can be purchased and quite frankly need to be purchased in order for the character to be a Nova. The scores in these megas can be added as dice whenever the link mundane attribute is being used. And what makes mega attributes even more special is that every success on a mega attribute die counts as two successes while a 10 counts as three. There's an alternate use for Mega Attributes as well. A player can choose to use the score in a given Mega Attribute to reduce the target or difficulty by one point per score point. Of course, that can never drop your target level below one. And before you ask, yes, a player can split the Mega Attribute points between lowering the target and getting more dice. Don't thank me, thank the game creators. Powers are purchased just about the same as skills, though unlike skills, which cap at level five, powers can reach level six. That being said, powers are cheaper to purchase at lower levels, though, as you might expect, they're not quite as powerful. Needless to say, the higher the level you want a power, the more points you're going to need to purchase them, so you're probably going to have to play for a long time to get that level 6 teleportation power you were wanting so badly. Again, from my own experiences, the game is still a lot of fun to play at lower levels, so really don't get overly concerned about only having level 1 powers. Eventually, everything does work out. Hopefully. <laughs> Over the course of the original run of Aberrant, 14 supplements were produced. Additionally, one supplement, Underworld, was available as a PDF only, while another, Brainwaves, was never actually supposed to be published as it was considered unfinished. That being said, the author, Stephen Kenson, allowed it to be made available in PDF form. There were also several supplements written by fans, and those, of course, were available solely in PDF as well. Over the years, Aberrant has been a favorite of both critics and fans, and most of the reviews you'll read about the game are positive. Let's shift gears now and check out our second entry on today's show, Basic Role-Playing. Now, Basic Role-Playing has an interesting history. It originated with the rules for RuneQuest, which was created by Steve Perrin and released in 1978. However, Greg Stafford came up with the idea of simplifying the rules, take out some of the more complicated systems, and release it as a 16-page book. That's how RuneQuest was quasi-morphed into Basic Role-Playing. Chaosium was responsible for both games, by the way, so there weren't any licensing issues. Basic role-playing was intended to be one of the first systems that would allow any sort of role-playing game to be played, with the idea being that setting-specific rules could be released as a separate book and combined with the basic rules to make up the game to be played. And the benefit, in the minds of the creators anyway, was that once you learned the core rules, plugging in a setting-specific rule would be as easy as removing a game cartridge from your console. Yeah, okay, I just showed my age with that reference, but I still think it makes the point. Chaosium made their point as well, releasing the Worlds of Wonder box set in 1982. In addition to an updated and slightly revised core book, it had booklets with rules for playing in specific genres. One of these booklets was Super World, and Chaosium would eventually spin that off into its own game book. That's another show. Over the years, Greg Stafford would be joined by Lynn Willis, Sandy Peterson, Steve Henderson, and numerous others in producing supplements and rule updates for the game. 
It should be noted that in the minds of numerous writers and historians, basic role-playing is considered to be the first role-playing game system that introduced a full-skill system regardless of profession or class. Now, if we're being honest, RuneQuest started down that path, but basic role-playing refined it. And I should add that Call of Cthulhu refined that even further when it was released because it's pretty much a skill-based system. Basic Role-Playing got a third edition in 2002. Titled Basic Role-Playing The Chaosium System, it was another revised and updated form of what had been previously released, so the names we've mentioned already got credit for the design. Yay! Two years later, Chaosium released a series of paperback booklets called the Basic Role-Playing Monographs. The first four books in the line, the Player's Book, Magic Book, Creature's Book, and Game Master Book, were basically just the third edition of RuinQuest, with the RuinQuest name and trademarks removed. Most believe that Chaosium did that because while they'd lost the rights to the RuinQuest name, they still had the copyright to the rules system. Over the years, they continued to release monographs. These releases updated the mechanics and extended the system to other genres of games. It should be noted, however, that a number of these monographs utilized rules from other out-of-print Chaosium games. But you know what? I don't blame them. I mean, if you own it and you can't or aren't using it in its original form anymore, why not try to find a way to make a buck out of it? As long as it doesn't suck, anyway. In 2008, Chaosium produced what we would call the fifth edition of the game. Jason Durall and Sam Johnson distilled all of the previous published works and updated them for the new edition. This new edition, called Basic Role-Playing, The Chaosium System, has also been called The Big Gold Book, both due to its size and the fact that it has a gold-colored cover, of course. The 5th edition took basically all of the subsystems originally published and provided them with the core rules. That would allow game masters to build their own games for pretty much any genre with the purchase of a single book. Chaosium also released a quick start booklet for players new to the system as a way to entice them to purchase the big gold book. This version of the game got an upgrade in 2011, which I guess we'll call 6th edition, though Chaosium itself refers to it as the 2nd edition of the upgraded system. Semantics, kids. Semantics. We've got one more release for basic role-playing for you. In 2020, Chaosium released it as a system reference document, which allows for other companies to produce material for it, so long as they follow the guidelines. So I guess it's not really a new release per se, but an opportunity for other publishers to drop new stuff. Ringworld, Hawkmoon, and Nephilim are among the various Chaosium titles released over the years that utilize the basic role-playing system in some form. The SRD wasn't the first time Chaosium had put the basic role-playing system out there for others to use. They just previously made other publishers pay to get the license to do it. It also made them one of the first publishers that actually allowed something like that to happen. Because for the longest time, you just didn't allow anybody else to publish something using the system you'd created. That was just the mindset of the time. Fantasy Games Unlimited was one of the first to take advantage of this, publishing Other Sons in 1983. The Swedish publisher Target Games also licensed basic role-playing to produce the game Drakkar och Demoner in 1982. And with my butchery of that title, let's move on to the mechanics of basic role-playing. In a nutshell, basic role-playing works similar to GURPS, Hero System, and Savage Worlds. Much like those systems, it takes a core batch of mechanics for character creation and keeps them non-specific to a particular genre, which allows them to be easily incorporated into any game. With basic role-playing, there's seven core characteristics. Size, strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, power, and appearance, which has also been called charisma over the various editions. 
As in other systems we've covered on this show, you use the attributes to work out your scores and skills, which are percentages in basic role-playing. And for this system, the skills are the basis of playing, as percentile dice are rolled when attempting actions, with equal or lower rolls being successful. We that's similar to a lot of games we've discussed. The various editions of basic role-playing have tinkered with the mechanics a bit, and one of the big changes is the percentile system itself. Early on, no score could be above 100%, but games like Stormbringer made scores over 100% achievable for all characters. Now, if you want to increase a score, there's a mechanic in the game that allows for experience checks, though the specific mechanic varies by the game you're playing. Basic role-playing was also unique for its time in that it sees armor and defense as separate functions, since one could parry an attack, which would be a defensive move that attempts to prevent a hit, while your armor would absorb the damage from an attack that hits. Other systems have adopted mechanics similar to this over the years, but basic role-playing was one of the first, if not the first, that actually did it. We got one more mechanic to look at here. In basic role-playing, there's really not a major difference between characters and monsters or other opponents. In other words, the way you'd create either is the same. The only real difference is in how you build the creature with ability scores and skills. The methods you use to create them are exactly as the same for player characters. Over the years, basic role-playing has won a number of awards. Well, more to the point, the games built on the basic role-playing system have won the awards. Call of Cthulhu won the 1981 Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Rules. Other editions of Cthulhu have also won Origins Awards. And Cthulhu has also picked up the Origins Hall of Fame Award. Okay, so I've been nice to the system while I've been doing my description of it. Now it's time to dip into a review that wasn't quite so nice. Ronald Peer reviewed the system in the July 1981 edition of The Space Gamer, and here's what he had to say. Quote, Basic role-playing is too little, too late. RuneQuest is long established, does an adequate job of teaching role-playing, and there are now even more games to choose from. If you want to teach role-playing to a very young but literate child, basic role-playing is excellent. Otherwise, for all its charm, it's not much use. End quote. There were some reviewers, such as John Sapienza in the August 1981 edition of Dragon Magazine, who found some redeeming qualities about the game, but most reviewers panned the system for many of the same reasons as Peer. And even though Sapienza had nice things to say, even he noted that basic role-playing was, quote, not a fantasy role-playing game as such, but a handbook on how to role-play and a simple combat system to help the beginner get into the act, end quote. To this point in the show, we have now covered two of our three topics, so before we run out of time for today, let's get into the third and final tour stop, chivalry and sorcery. We've covered chivalry and sorcery in a short form back when we were doing our timelines of role-playing games, so a few of the things I'm going to be discussing here got to sound familiar. However, we haven't yet done it in longer form, that's why we're doing it today. I'm also going to handle the history and mechanics of the game a little bit differently than I usually would, and that's because every source I checked out for the game tended to organize their stuff by edition. So, rather than give a full history, then break down the mechanics, then do reviews and awards, we're going to do all four of those by each edition of the game. It's a little different for me, I'll grant you, but it does save my sanity since it's how all my research is organized and I had about 30 pages of research, which my wife and daughter will tell you is a hell of a lot more pages than the amount of sanity I have left, <laughs> I can assure you of that. The basics and the history of chivalry and sorcery are this. 
Edward E. Symbolist and Wilf K. Backhouse were gamers who were exceptionally annoyed and dissatisfied with the mechanics and rules for D&D. Now, mind you, these were the days of the original rules, and I can assure you they were not the only ones who found them confusing, frustrating, or a combination of the two. Unlike most gamers, though, Symbolist and Backhouse decided to do something about it. They created a game they called Chevalier, which was derived from D&D, which was at the time pretty much the only thing going when it came to fantasy gaming. The original plan was to present it to Gary Gygax, Gen Con in 1977, with the thought being that maybe TSR would want it as a variant on D&D or some sort of alternative system or something. But before they could get their meeting with Gygax, a fellow by the name of Scott Bizar met with them instead. He suggested they could release the game without the backing of Gygax, and he believed Chevalier could be a legitimate competitor to Dungeons & Dragons. He was so confident, he actually wrote out a letter of intent and Symbolist and Backhouse signed. Of course, if they were going to publish this game on their own, they were going to need to remove any references to materials from D&D, and that was going to take some work, because they'd used a saving throw table that was quite similar to D&D, among a whole lot of other rules that were quite similar to what you would find in the other game. Once those changes were made, the first edition of the new game, now called Chivalry and Sorcery, was released in 1977. Before we drop further into the timeline of the game, we should note what the writer Michael Tresca said about the game in his 2010 historical coverage of the industry as a whole, the evolution of fantasy role-playing games. He noted that the game, quote, embraced a realistic approach to medieval France in the 12th century, complete with feudalism and the Catholic Church, end quote. There were more to his thoughts on that game, but when I cover that book in another show, you're going to understand why I didn't include him. Spoiler alert, he's been known to get some of his facts and dates wrong. Just saying. Sorry, didn't mean to dog the guy in a show that wasn't even about his stuff. Let's just go ahead and dig into the timeline of the various editions of the game. As I mentioned, the first edition came out in 1977 and was published by Fantasy Games Unlimited. As Michael Tresca noted, the background of the game was very much influenced by medieval France and the concepts of Christianity. It also included knights, and that brought its own blend of chivalry, tournaments, courtly love, and all the other things that you would expect from knights. There was also the hierarchical priesthood. These guys could perform miracles. And I think just in the background, you're seeing what the big differences were from D&D. Symbolist and Backhouse also managed to sneak in some Tolkien references, with hobbits and balrogs being a part of this first edition. I'm thinking, though, that the Tolkien estate must have gotten wind of that at some point, because those references disappear as you get into the later editions of the game. Let's look at uh, character creation. With that, chivalry and sorcery begins with the selection of the character's race. Okay, that's not entirely true. It, it begins with the random selection of the character's race. See, a lot of the character creation in Chivalry and Sorcery at that time was random. Roll some dice, check a chart, and go with what your die rolls would give you. I'll admit, there were some reviewers that didn't like that, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Once the race has been figured out, there's more randomness to come. The character's primary characteristics, size, weight, and astral sign are also randomly chosen. For the record, primary characteristics are dexterity, strength, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, appearance, and bardic voice. When it comes to secondary characteristics, there's a set system to figuring out their scores. They are derived from the primary characteristics and adjusted by the size and weight of the character. And I'll admit, that's not something I'd seen done before, 
but later editions of D&D, along with other games published since about 2000, they do kind of make adjustments to skill checks that are based on encumbrance, your armor, and things like that. This particular way of doing it just happens to take your size and weight into account when you're actually working out the secondary characteristic to begin with. And these secondary characteristics are body points, or how much damage the character can take before they die, fatigue points, or how much exertion they can take before they pass out, charisma, that's leadership, carrying capacity, how much weight they can lift or carry, Personal combat factor, fighting skill and proficiency with melee weapons, military ability factor, the ability to command and direct an army, and command level, which is the ability to lead an army. Now, some of these you're going to recognize as variants on skills or abilities from D&D. Others seem to have been custom created for this game and system, and that's mostly the ones that are military-based. One of the first times the player actually gets to choose something in character creation is when it comes for their alignment. I realize that in the modern game, alignment either isn't used or really doesn't mean that much, but in the early days of tabletop role-playing, alignment really seemed to be a big deal. Even though if you read or listen to comments from Gary Gygax about alignment, he really didn't see it the way everybody else did. Them's the breaks, I guess. Anyway, alignment could be chosen by the player, or it could be randomly assigned, because hey, why not just make everything about the character random? While the base alignments are identical to D&D, lawful, neutral, and chaotic, the, the sublevels, or at least the description of those, if sublevel is even the right term, are a bit different. Let's do some examples. Characters could be lawful, saintly, or chaotic, diabolical. It's a little bit different than D&D, at least in the descriptions. Next up, we've got a question in character creation that is definitely from the 1970s. What's your sign? All right, if you've got no idea what that means, ask somebody who was dating in the late 70s. Trust me, it has gone down in history as probably the cheesiest pickup line ever. So we're going to forget about that. Let's get into astral signs. Those, as everything else, are randomly assigned. The concept here is that you might have been born under a lucky star for the vocation you have, and if that's the case, you'll gain more experience when you do tasks in that area. If you weren't, you will get normal experience. If by chance you happen to be born under an unlucky star, you're going to get less experience. So it could very well suck to be you, or suck to be your character, anyway. Phobias and mental illness were also a part of the character creation process, and while phobias still exist in a number of games today, we've gotten a bit wiser about mental illness, and most game creators won't even touch that subject unless it's in a respectful tone. You can call me a snowflake if you want, but I'm perfectly okay with that change in philosophy. If you want to know why I feel that way, we did an entire episode on mental health and gaming in early January of this year, so head over to the archives and check it out. Next up is social status, and it's determined by, you guessed it, a random drawing. This will give you the origin and social rank of your character. And once you get all of these things we've talked about figured out, you as the player do get a choice, and that's what role your character will follow. And there are a ton of those, so we're not going to get into them here. Maybe that's something we can do for the campaign build-along. Or maybe a YouTube or website exclusive. If you might be interested in that, hey, hit me up, let me know. Now, as a fan of both Harry Potter and Harry Dresden, and as an aside, what is it, is it with wizards named Harry? Anyway, I have to discuss the magic system from Chivalry and Sorcery a little bit. Wolf Backhouse was the designer for that magic system, and it's been reported that his inspiration came from the book Real Magic by Isaac Bonewitz. By the way, Isaac Bonewitz has been described by many as a neo-druid whose focuses were neo-paganism and magic. And no, I'm not making fun of him. 
when I read his Wikipedia entry, this seems like a pretty damn interesting dude. So there's that. Obviously, I didn't dig too deep into it because this show's not about him. It's about this game. But anyway, something to think about. Getting back into our game. The ability to cast magic, or at least the capability of that, is determined by the concentration level, which is derived from characteristics, bonus astral, and experience. That determines the magic level. Magic level determines what level of spells are available, and obviously more levels are available as the components that make up the magic level increase. The highest magic level a magician can have is 22, which comes from the number of cards in a major arcana tarot deck. One more magical thing is called the personal magic factor. This determines the scope and duration of spells, plus the amount of materials the magician needs. It's made up of various characteristics, plus the magic level. Look, I know this is all confusing, but it is it's most assuredly different than D&D, which was their idea. All right, I promised a couple of reviews of this first edition, so let's get to them. Greg Kostikian gave his in the initial issue of Ares Magazine in March of 1980. He gave it a score of 6 out of 9 and said, quote, Although the lack of world design rules and poor organization are sorely felt, CNS remains the best full-scale, complicated fantasy role-playing game published to date. End quote. John Tyndall wrote his own review in the October 1981 issue of The Space Gamer. He agreed with other reviewers who thought the rules were too complex. However, most of those reviewers who urged players to avoid the game, Tyndall didn't. He said, quote, It's been said that CNS is unplayable, that it's better as a work of reference, but that is emphatically untrue. I know many people who play CNS and enjoy the game very much. It all comes down to one question. Are you willing to spend the time to learn the complicated rules? If you are, by all means, buy CNS. Your reward will be many hours of joy. If you are not, stay away. It's not for you. End quote. Insofar as awards, this version of the game won the H.G. Wells Award for all-time best ancient medieval rules of 1979. Chivalry and Sorcery might have had a bit of a rough exit from the gate, but it did well enough to earn itself a second edition. Fantasy Games Unlimited published this version as well, with Symbolist and Backhouse retaining their credits for writing and creating. It was released in 1983, and while it was different in its presentation, coming in a cardboard box and having three booklets of rules, which at the time was the way you presented your game, the mechanics of the game stayed the same. In fact, the only changes admitted to by fantasy games at the time was what they referred to as clarifying or simplifying some of the points made in the rules. However, there was one somewhat significant change made with 2nd edition, and that's that the medieval setting was divided into three very distinct eras. Early feudal, high chivalric feudal, and late chivalric feudal. This brought the setting a bit more in line with the timeline in history, and it also allowed for a difference in technology depending on the era the game was set in. An example of this is the fact that heavy plate armor and two-handed swords would only be available in the late chivalric feudal period, which was the 14th to 15th centuries. Other than this change and some clarifications, the game stayed the same. The question would be, did the reviews change with the edition? Marcus Rowland reviewed this edition for the October 1983 edition of White Dwarf. First off, he gave the production values a 10 out of 10, but he had a lot to say about the game and it wasn't all glowing. Quote, Overall, character generation in C&S is still extremely complicated and might take inexperienced players several hours, especially if they make the fatal mistake of working in the wrong order. Skill acquisition in C&S is almost indescribably complex and involves at least three distinct systems, end quote. 
However, he did say, quote, probably the best feature of these rules is their attention to detail expressed in such minutiae as the table used to develop the exact culinary skills and tables for eye and hair color, end quote. Paul Mason was a bit more blunt. He reviewed it for Imagine Magazine and said, quote, Chivalry and sorcery mistakenly attempts to compete with the AD&D game in terms of detail. It's a hopeless task which can only produce a fragmented and complex set of rules. As a reference work and as a source of ideas for incorporation into other games, chivalry and sorcery is still excellent, but I doubt it will shake its popular image as a cult game on the fringes of the hobby mainstream, end quote. I dug up more reviews, but I gotta be honest, they all pretty much say variations on what we just got here. So rather than continue to just beat the dead horse, let's move on to third edition. It took 13 years to get a third edition, but in 1996, Highlander Designs published the book. It was revised and designed by Symbolist and Backhouse with G.W. Thompson working with them this go around. Thompson was the founder of Highlander Designs, so if he wanted to help, one can say it was most certainly his right to do so. This edition of Chivalry and Sorcery has been nicknamed the Green Book since the cover is green. Yeah, I know. Duh. This version of the game made some major changes, the first of which was the removal of all French historical and cultural background. They also pulled all of the medieval references from the book. In my opinion, stripping the game of its French and medieval portions kind of takes away what made it different, but Highlander Designs would disagree with that as they stated at the time they were doing this to make the game, quote, more flexible and customizable, end quote. In a first for the chivalry and sorcery line, a system of skills was developed, and these worked much like the skills we're used to seeing in today's game. However, they still used the percentile dice system, so at least that part of the system didn't change at all. Pyramid Magazine number 29, which was the January-February 1998 edition, had a review of this version of the game. The reviewer noted that, quote, it definitely uses some modern production features, though the layout is a bit busy and played by typos, but the defining aspect of most 90s games, which is quick character generation, rules lightness, and storytelling, not dice rolling, those aren't a part of this game. Instead, CNS3 recalls the early days of gaming with an emphasis on rules and charts to cover just about any conceivable situation. End quote. Gotta be honest, I'm not sure if that's a positive or negative review, but it sounds a whole hell of a lot better than what we were hearing for the first two editions. Now, sometime between 1996 and 1999, Highlander Designs went bankrupt. During those proceedings, Britannia Game Designs Limited, which is a British company owned by Steve Turner, bought the company. And they wasted no time getting another edition of Chivalry and Sorcery out. They called it the Rebirth Edition, and it came out in 2000. Not a lot of changes made here. In fact, it was basically just a version that cleaned up the typos, made things a little bit easier to understand, and as one might expect, put a cover on it with Britannia's logo. There were several supplements released for this fourth edition. Among them were the Knight's Companion, Armorer's Companion, Dwarf's Companion, and Elves' Companion. Alongside the fourth edition release, Britannia distilled the rules of the game down in what has been called a simpler version. They called it Essence, and it must have really been because it was a four-page PDF. I'm serious about that. They boiled this entire game down to four pages. Now, I think at some point Britannia realized they might have taken out too much. So in 2011, they released a 44-page version of Essence. Now, that was very well received, but I've got no information on the sales numbers or reviews. What I do know is Britannia wanted another full version of the game. 
However, instead of just commissioning it and hoping for the best, they did what a lot of publishers do these days. They launched a Kickstarter in 2019. Needless to say, the interest was still there as they made 273% of their target goal and the 5th edition was released in February of 2020. Since it was a Kickstarter, they didn't print a whole lot of additional books. So if you're looking for one online, be prepared to both pay a pretty penny and to be getting yourself a used copy. Also, I'm not going to be covering any reviews for this edition because those reviews are going to come pretty much solely from those who backed the Kickstarter. So I'm not going to include them because if you're backing a Kickstarter, you're obviously very intrigued with what's going on. And with a chivalry and sorcery release, you're probably a fan. So as long as you got your stuff within a reasonable amount of time and you got in the condition you were expecting it in, chances are you're not going to leave a bad review. However, if you are interested in checking out this version of the game, Britannia has made it available in PDF form, and I found it at drivethroughrpg.com. And with that, we've come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we're going to look at the foursome from Flying Buffalo who work together to help make Tunnels and Trolls, as well as a number of other games we've all loved over the years, a possibility. Rick Loomis, Michael Stackpole, Elizabeth T. Danforth, and Ken St. Andre will be the focus. As we wrap this week, I encourage you to check out our other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. It's the show where we build an entire campaign for you to use for your group as soon as tonight, if that's your style. Episode 20 released today, and we are well into what I believe is a very interesting Deadlands classic campaign. So check out Bad GM's Campaign Build Along wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.com. Net. And yes, you can call up that website on mobile and still have all the features. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube, Bad GM Productions. Email, Bad GM Productions at gmail.com. And online, the website, as we've said several times, badgmproductions.net. Next week, we do not one, not two, but four of Flying Buffalo's creative minds. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of creativity in one place. I, uh, I wonder if one show can handle it. We're going to find out, but that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.